This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 8, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week, Science's books editor, Valerie Thompson, is here, and she brings a summer reading list that will have you doing everything from catching stardust to swimming with the fishes. Mira Mufaraj discusses her research into a new type of blood test that can reveal the gestational age of a fetus and help predict preterm birth. Now we have Valerie Thompson, books editor here for Science, and she's going to talk about our summer reading list. Hi, Valerie. Hi, Sarah. These are recommendations, right? Yeah, that's kind of how I think of them when I put together the set. It's especially fun because I um, work with early career researchers on these reviews. And so it's kind of fun to see their enthusiasm for the books and for the topics. And I kind of try to choose books that are have a little bit of adventure to them. I feel like that's kind of a key component of summer reading. Oh, for sure. And I will, I mean, there are recommendations, but these reviews, they're honest. There's not all love in every single <laughs> sentence. That's true. And I feel like you can't, in a review, like that's what you want. You don't want to mislead someone about a book. And I feel like just because there's criticism for a book also doesn't mean it's it's not necessarily worth reading. And right. so I think for a couple of these, they're either like a provocative topic or have like a very interesting take on a topic. And just because you may not agree with the author doesn't mean that it's not worth talking about in our pages. And you ended up with three books about the water. <laughs> I would argue that they're all like a little bit, you know, they're oh, all kind of focus on different parts of the water. I, I thought maybe you were, you know, hinting at beach reads and any one of these would probably be suitable for that. <laughs> That's definitely true. Which one should we talk about of the watery books? Let's talk about Eye of the Shoal. So Eye of the Shoal is written by marine biologist Helen Scales. Um, we've reviewed her books in the past and they're always delightful. And so this book looks at all things fish. So she asks questions that all of us might have if we think about fish, um, but never thought to ask. So how do shoaling fish avoid bumping into each other? And how do they avoid getting caught by predators? And how do thousands of fish species all live together in crowded places? And what do they do when the water dries up? On top of that, she kind of layers this cultural element where she talks about how fish have been part of our cultural ethos for so long. Apparently in 16th century Iceland, there was this believed to be this flaming golden flounder. And if you caught it, it would protect you against evil spirits and ghosts. But the only way to catch it was to 
use gold as bait and wear a pair of gloves made of human skin. Oh. So up to you, I guess, which one is <laughs> which one is preferable. <laughs> but I think in the way she weaves in those stories um, into the science makes it more interesting and gives us more of a, a hold on this world, which is otherwise kind of alien to us. Very cool. One more fun romp through history, or more fun romp through history, is finding Einstein's brain. I read the review and now I can't remember. It, Einstein's brain isn't actually missing, is it? So Einstein's brain is not currently missing, but there was this period of time, uh, I think it was 60 years in between when his brain was extracted after his death and when the first studies just started coming out on it. And so it's an interesting story of like what happened to his brain in the meantime. What I really liked about this book is that it's kind of uses Einstein's brain as a way to talk more about what we can infer from neuroanatomy, which is not as much as we would like, especially in terms of intelligence. While Einstein did have some unique aspects to his neuroanatomy, I think that he had an extra gyri in his right frontal lobe, uh, one more than is typically found in humans. The book itself is talking about the limitations of trying to pin down intelligence in someone's neuroanatomy. And I think um, one of the interesting things, too, was that apparently Einstein's brain weighed a little less than was expected for someone his age. But of course, like that's something that we know now is, you know, the size of your brain has very little to do with your intelligence. And so it's not entirely unexpected, just kind of unusual, I guess. Okay, one more and then I'll let you go. Let's talk about comets. And this is a book about comets by a geologist. Yeah, so that's right. So Natalie Starkey, actually, her background is in geochemistry, and now um, she works as a professional science writer. So her book is called Catching Stardust, and it's looking at how we can look at these celestial bodies and what we can learn about the origins of our solar system from them. So she talks a little bit about meteorites. So meteorites are the debris that's left over from asteroids after they travel through our atmosphere. And those are obviously very easy for us to study because they show up right on our doorstep, basically. We don't have to go anywhere to study them. What we can't learn from meteorites is things about some of the original asteroids' properties. We don't know like how fluffy it is, which basically means like the density of the comet compared to its volume. And we don't know anything about its ice content. And so to do that, we actually have to travel to space. And part of the book talks about the recent European Rosetta mission. So the European Rosetta mission orbited this comet called 67P, and they were able to um, extract a lot of data from the comet that we normally wouldn't be able to. It's one of the first times this mission is being talked about in book form. I do want to go back to some of the more controversial books on this list. Let's talk physics controversy. So one of the books that we're reviewing, I think, is going to be especially controversial in the physics community. The book is called Lost in Math, and it is the debut book written by Sabine Hassenfelder, who will be familiar to theoretical physicists for her blog, Back Reaction. My impression is that She's kind of a provocateur uh, in this community, but I think a lot of what she has to say is warranted. I mean, there's this kind of crisis going on, is my impression, in this community where high-energy physicists have relied on these theoretical guiding principles to develop new models. But when they're being tested in the Large Hadron Collider, they're, they're just not being verified. And so there kind of is this crisis. And my impression is that the criticism that she often gets is that she's not offering a better solution. But it's not fair to say 
solve physics if you don't like the way we're solving physics. <laughs> well, I think it is. I mean, I think it's okay to to point out that there is a problem. Yeah. And, and she does try to engage with the types of questions that we're asking are in many ways philosophical. So perhaps we need to engage more with philosophers. And maybe that's where we can think about moving. Uh, that said, I, I do expect this book will be controversial. She herself expects it. But I think uh, a lot of people will be talking about it for that reason. All right, Valerie, I know there's a few we didn't get to mention. So people should check it out on the books blog, which is Googleable at Books at All from Science. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Valerie Thompson is the books editor for Science. You can read the reviews on Books at All and in the magazine. Stay tuned for an interview with Mira Mufaraj on a blood test that can estimate gestational age and predict risk of preterm delivery. This episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. And this is one of those box services where everything is included and you can have them send you a project to your house, you and your kid open it up on a Saturday morning, and you've got something to do. You don't have to go to the store and buy felt. You don't have to find all the tools in the basement. This is just something that's all-inclusive. KiwiCo's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation they need to become a creative problem solver and critical thinker. With five different types of projects, there's something for kids of all ages, from ages 2 to 3 all the way through ages 9 to 16. They create hands-on projects for kids that are fun and educational. KiwiCo delivers convenience. Everything is included in the box. Gifting a KiwiCo subscription to the kid in your life will unleash their creativity and innovation and quite possibly make you their favorite person. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit kiwico.com magazine. Again, that's kiwico, K-I-W-I-C-O dot magazine to try KiwiCo for free. The current way that we tell the gestational age of a fetus, and that's how long a fetus has been developed, how long it's been in there, um, a human fetus, is by looking at it, by using ultrasound to view the developing fetus. And this is an expensive method. There are a couple drawbacks to it. And now researchers have come up with a blood test that may do as good a job or maybe as better a job. Um, they wrote about it in Science This Week, and one of the authors, Mira Mufarish, is here to talk about this technology. Welcome, Mira. Hi. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So did I get that right? Is is that the way we tell how old, how long fetuses have been in there is by looking at them and kind of checking out size and, and other markers of development? Yeah. Ultrasound basically looks at what they call crown to rump length, which is just how long the developing fetus is. And during the first trimester, there's an assumption of a constant growth rate. So based on how long that length is, we can determine how developed the fetus is currently or an, an estimation of that. And why is it important to know what developmental stage, what week of a pregnancy you're looking at? So in order to be able to tell if everything's going correctly in a pregnancy, we would want to understand how far along a pregnancy is since that defines certain developmental milestones. So you can think mm -hmm. of gestational age as basically a proxy for us being able to measure how fetal development is going 
Okay, so in this study, which is a pilot study, so it's not ready to roll out to the masses, but you used measurements of cell-free RNA in the blood of pregnant women to estimate gestational age. Why don't you start with what is cell-free RNA? So cell-free RNA is just RNA that we find free-floating in the plasma of blood. So that just means the liquid component of blood. And where cell-free RNA comes from is if you think of your blood as a garbage disposal system or a highway, <laughs> any cell that dies and releases its contents, or if it's sending something extracellularly like an exosome, that ends up in the blood. And so if we measure what's in the blood at a certain time point, it gives us a good snapshot of what's going on in the body based on what cells have died. If more cells of a certain type have died, then you're, you'd expect to see more of that specific RNA. You know, when I was pregnant, uh, I had a cell-free DNA test, and they were looking for actual DNA from the fetus, and they could tell sex from that, and they could tell, you know, if they had multiple types of a chromosome that they weren't supposed to have. Is this similar? Is this RNA that you're sourcing from the fetus, or is it from the pregnant woman? Right now, the test we have developed looks at just total RNA. We suspect that some of it comes from the fetus because, for instance, if we look at placental RNA, it goes up and then after delivery drops back down to a baseline of zero. So that's clearly pregnancy associated. And you can think of RNA as looking at the dynamics of pregnancy, whereas DNA looks at constants during pregnancy, like if the fetus has an abnormality in chromosome count. Okay. So DNA is clearly identified or linked to the fetus, but in this case, RNA is more about what the the mother's body is doing as pregnancy is supported and continued. And you, you can see markers of that that correspond to gestational age. So the markers that we find actually that correspond to gestational age are placental specific RNA transcripts. So there are maternal and fetal cells in the placenta. Okay. So you're you're kind of detecting both at the same time. And and how accurate was this, you know, when you screened blood over time during a woman's pregnancy? You know, can you talk about your sample size, how many measurements you took, and how it compared to ultrasounds as a standard? Yeah. We had samples from 31 women who delivered at full term and These samples were collected in Denmark, and we had blood samples from every week during pregnancy, which is amazing. And then one time, three weeks postpartum, meaning after the woman had delivered, cell-free RNA leaves the body in about 20 minutes. So three weeks after, you should have a good maternal baseline with nothing from the fetus. What we found is that our test works better in the second and the third trimester, which is complementary to when ultrasound works, which is best in the first trimester, with comparable accuracy when we did a head-to-head comparison. And then the other thing that you managed that you were able to pull out of this data and and with additional data sets was this predictive ability for preterm delivery. So can you talk about what kind of markers that is? And is it compared to anything else out there right now um, that has predictive power over this? Yeah. Spontaneous preterm delivery for context is when a woman delivers before 37 weeks without any prior warning signs. Ultrasound measures how far along a woman is, but it doesn't give you a good idea of when she's going to deliver. And so it's the leading cause of infant death. And currently what we know about spontaneous preterm delivery is that, well, we don't know its causes. And what we do know is that if you're an African-American woman or a woman who gets pregnant when she's older, you are at a higher risk in general, but not that you will deliver for this specific pregnancy preterm. The current tests on the market 
they're very good at predicting if you won't deliver preterm. They are not good at predicting if you will deliver preterm, which is <laughs> encouraging. But if you want treatment, then you would also want to be able to figure out if you are going to deliver, not just if you're not. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Were you looking at the same markers for preterm risk, you know, the same cell-free RNA, or were you looking at a different set when you were looking for preterm delivery risk? So the gene set we developed here is completely separate. And interestingly, if we look at where those transcripts come from, they're ubiquitously expressed across tissues and they're implicated in signaling. So we can start to speculate whether the signal for preterm delivery comes from the mom or the fetus. It's not immediately obvious here because they're expressed across tissues, but there's interesting biology to be investigated following this. And these women were at high risk of preterm delivery and some of them were receiving treatment. Did that make any difference? It did not make any difference in the testing. And the way we know this is that we had one cohort that we'd reserved for discovery. And in that cohort, there were only three women that had had a prior spontaneous preterm birth and therefore were being treated using progesterone injections. And so in that cohort, we identified these genes that differ between preterm and full-term. Then we tested it in a cohort that every woman, whether she delivered preterm or full-term, was treated with progesterone because she'd had a prior spontaneous preterm birth. And we still see the same differences, meaning that we can't fully account for the changes that we see between the two groups based only on treatment. So the signal is there whether treatment is happening or not. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. So this, as we mentioned before, is a pilot study. These are pretty small samples. So what's next? Do you just need to broaden out to many, many more women? Yeah, I think there are a couple directions next. The first is replicating this in a prospective blinded study where any woman who comes into the clinic, we would get blood samples from and we would see even if a woman was asymptomatic, if we get the same differences. Since the transcripts that identify a woman as at risk of preterm delivery seem to be associated with the phenotype, we can start asking questions about what further experiments can we do to get at the cause of preterm birth? Can we develop treatments there? And can this associative information that we found in cell-free RNA further the experiments that we can do in the lab? Okay. People really like ultrasounds, or there's a subset of people who really like getting ultrasounds done. Do you think that if this takes off, we're going to see kind of a decline in that? I think that this technology is both complementary and a substitute for ultrasound, depending on its use case. So in the developed world, we can imagine that it'd be complementary to ultrasound in the first trimester. And if a woman wants to get more ultrasound done later, that that provides certain information. But this provides even richer information about the risks that she might encounter. And hopefully, as we further develop this, not only risk of spontaneous preterm delivery, but risks of things like gestational diabetes or other congenital defects in utero. But in the case where a woman doesn't have access to ultrasound, then this can serve as a comparable substitute for ultrasound. Okay, Mira, thank you so much. Thank you. Mira Mufaraj is a graduate student in the bioengineering department of the School of Medicine and Engineering at Stanford University. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen to us on the Science site, where you can also read about the research and news stories discussed in each episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. 
On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.